The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, so if you will um, look at your packet that's in front of you, we have, uh, for, the, for the last, um, starting last week and for the remaining, uh, this is probably going to go about a total of six weeks, uh, we will be looking at what it means to share the gospel. What, what are we sharing when we are sharing the gospel? What are we doing when we're sharing the gospel? And even how do we do that? And so what I want to do is not just talk about it from kind of an academic perspective. I do want to explain that. But I also want to go to just even practical things that you may need to think about as you're uh, talking with people. Some things that you might want to challenge them with. Uh, questions that you might want to ask that help to kind of maybe get out of them, um, you know, their real honest uh, feelings, you know, and thoughts and their own philosophy and theology about the world because everybody has one. And so we're, we're wanting to do both of those things. And if, if you, the slide on the screen behind me is the cover of the Two Ways to Live tract. We have ordered these tracks. They, are, they should be out on the table. Um, when you come in on Sunday or Wednesday, feel free to take as many as you can give out in the week, okay? Uh, don't just take a whole big stack of them all at once and then go, oh, I'll hand these out over the course of the year because then we can't give them to anybody else. So uh, just take as many as you can give out in a week. And if you give, you know, four out in a week and you come back and you want to take four more, that's fine by me. I'm not counting. I'm just saying uh, don't take them all at once unless you're going to hand them all out at once, um, you know. But essentially on the back of those tracks, there is a, a sticker that basically is an invitation uh, to the person that you're giving it to, to, uh, to Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's got a service time on there, and it's got a space for you to write your name. So what I'd encourage you to do is just take one. Uh, you can write your name on the back of it when you get it, and then that way whenever you, you know, put it in your pocket, put it in your purse if you're a lady carrying around a purse. That way, you know, if you meet somebody, you can just hand it to them, and you can invite them to church. And if you have no more time than to just merely invite them to church, y'all are passing by, you know, you know, or something like that, and that's all you've got time to do, well, then it serves as an invitation, and it's also an explanation of the gospel for them that they can read when they get home. But if, by chance, you do get an opportunity to explain the gospel to them, it's a great way to walk you through or walk them through the gospel as you're presenting it. And what I really like about this tract is that it, it is, presents in a very clear way, not merely hey, this is what Jesus did for us. It does all of that, of course, like a normal tract. But it also helps them understand that what we're talking about are a choice between two kingdoms. One is the kingdom that you sit as king over. And the other is one that God sits as king over. And the question is, which kingdom do you want to be a part of? What, the reason that I think that's important is because it's making clear to them that anything that is not choosing submitting to Christ is choosing yourself as king. And what you're going to realize when you die is that you're going to stand before a judge. That means that you're not really king, but you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're king, right? 
So it's, a, it's just a great way to present those two things before someone. That way they know that, look, if you refuse what I'm telling you, you're still doing what I'm talking about, right? You're, there's, no, there's no secret option C here, right? It's, it's really one of two ways to live and, um, and for everybody. And so it, it presents sort of this universal truth. So I, I really like that. Um, on the back, too, in the, in the, at least in the new ones that we've printed, there's a few that are just emmanueltuscaloosa.org as the web address. But then in some of the new ones that we've put out and that will be, be put, being put out, there is uh, emmanueltuscaloosa.org slash two ways. And that slash two ways is a, a link that goes straight to the web page where all of these uh, talks are going to be recorded. So if you don't have time to explain that to somebody and you give it to somebody on that website that they go to is going to be straight to an explanation, a walkthrough that we're doing now. So, um, so we're, we're going to be talking about this tract. We're going to be you know, hitting this pretty hard for the foreseeable future. And so you'll hear about it a lot. Sunday you'll hear it every announcement period and things like that, just as a reminder. So I think you know, set realistic goals. Don't, don't, you know, like I say, grab a stack and be like, I'm going to hand 100 out this week. That is great if you do that. But, you know, if you, if you set out to go, okay, I'm going to pray over who to give this to, and I really want to hand four out a year, you know, that's fantastic. You know, that, that's, that's great. You know, but you can set goals and you can set attainable goals and, and go after those. And nobody's counting. We're not, you know, you're not, you're not coming in and go, how many did you hand out this year? We're checking off boxes or anything. It's not about that. All right. We want to share the gospel. So, that's what we're going to do. So as a review of what we talked about last week, remember, it's pivotal that you understand that what we're doing when we share the gospel is we are proclaimers. That's what we're doing. You're a paper boy. You're, uh, you know, you're saying, read all about it. You know, this is, the, this is news. The gospel is news, and you are proclaiming that news to people. Now, the news is not contingent on the person's accepting of it, right? It's not contingent on their belief that it actually happened. If, if on 9-11-2001, somebody said, you know, read all about it. So, uh, two airplanes hit the World Trade Towers. And they go, I don't believe that. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. In New York, two planes hit two towers. Okay, so none of that matters whether you believe it. It's, just, it's in a similar way. What we're sharing in the good news is not contingent on somebody accepting or denying or, or whatever. Nor is it, should you take personal offense to their response to this news. This is news whether they believe it or not. And what you're doing is imparting to them that this is the only good news that is actually out there. If you want pure unadulterated, good, hard facts. That's good news. That in the end is for your joy. I got it for you. It's right here. You're not going to find it anywhere else, right? So we have to remember that that is what we're doing. And the first fundamental truth to the good news is that this message is about the one true living God who is the ruler of all things. And second, the world that God created is perfect. So there's two parts to that. One is that what I'm telling you in this news is that the God that I'm telling you about is the only God. I'm not telling you about one among many. 
I'm not telling you about, hey, the one that I found that was the best of all the ones out there. I'm telling you about the one and only. This is exclusive. There's none other. And if you look around at the world that he created, you can see that it is finely tuned for us to live here. And you can tell that his intention behind creating it was for our good. That it's built perfectly from the trees that grow out of the ground and to, to your own eyeball and to all kinds of things that you can point to. You can tell that it's good. If you've ever been to, uh, you know, out in the middle of like some national park or something like that where there's not a town for hundreds of miles, at night when you look up at the sky, the amount of stars that you can see when there is no light pollution from any, you know, cities nearby is astounding. Just to put your hand up on the sky, the amount of stars that fall inside your handprint are more than you can number. And you just don't get an appreciation for that in the city. But when you get way out there, you, it's amazing how many stars are out there. And you can see that this world that he created, you can sense that it was created perfect. Um, and for our good, because he loves us and he's, he's good. Um, but finally, what we talked about last week is that every person in this world is first and foremost a worshiper of the one true and living God. Because he is our creator, we were created for his glory. And what that means for the person that you're talking to, the reason that this is news, is everybody is looking for purpose. Everybody wants to know what their purpose is. And I got news for you, your purpose is not to fulfill the 40 hours a week at your job. That's not your ultimate purpose. Whatever that job is, that is not your ultimate purpose. Your ultimate purpose is to glorify God. That's what He created you for. So in that job, He wants you to work that, sure. But what does He want you to work it for? Just so that you'll get a paycheck? No. He wants you to work it for His glory. And He created you for that purpose, and He wants you to represent Him. That's, that's why you were created. So it's, it's, it's news for the person because, listen, everybody that you talk to, whether they're a believer or not, are wanting purpose and meaning. They want what they do to last. They don't want to, who, wants to, who wants to work for their entire life only to see them die and it just go into the ground and turn into worm food? Nobody wants that. Everybody knows that death is weird. It's strange and it's not normal. And it shouldn't be this way. And, and everything in our minds is built for something that lasts. And so the person that you're talking to you know, even if they say to you, even if they're initially resistant to hearing the gospel, you know ultimately deep down they want meaning. And they want purpose. And so people in our world want to hear the good news of the gospel, whether they know that or not. And they're certainly not going to come up to you and ask you, hey, I've heard about this thing called the gospel. Will you tell it to me? They're not going to do that. I mean, maybe, like once in your life ever, maybe, they might do that. But rarely, that's probably not going to be the case. So when you go up to somebody, know that this person that I'm talking to, you know, does want meaning, even if they're the most ardent atheist. They do want meaning in their lives, and I have it, okay? So as we talk about that, as we think about all of those things that we've, we looked at last week, even though it's obvious that the world was created for good purposes, you have to also recognize that just, frankly, when you look around at the world around you, Something has gone terribly wrong. And the fact that the world is broken is 
obvious to virtually every religion and even the most ardent atheist. I don't know of one person that would say not only was the world, whatever, created, accidentally come about, or however they would say it, not only was it, is it beautiful, but it's still perfect to this day. No one's going to say that. Everyone's going to look around and see, you know, so-and-so that died of cancer and, and, and this tragic accident and this thing over here that happened and this, my back pain, you know, that I got or whatever it is that you've got. Everybody's going to look around and say, something's not right. And, and I try to underscore this at every funeral that I ever go to or I ever preach, if I'm ever given a microphone to say anything, um, it, it's that we get really used to death. We get used to, you know, somebody growing old and then, go, and then dying and then we all go to their funeral. And, and then sometimes now we've kind of cast it almost as a celebration. You know, it's like, well, we're going to celebrate. And they even change the terms of the funeral to a celebration of life. But you have to understand that what the Bible is teaching us, even in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the last enemy to be defeated is death. And when that happens is when Jesus returns and the bodies rise from the dead and then he says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You understand? Because the last enemy to be defeated is death. For right now, the casket is an enemy. And it's not good, and it's not normal, and it's not a celebration, and it's not something to rejoice over. It's something to be saddened by. It's a casket. This isn't normal. And when you look at the world around you, you can see that I get the feeling that as I look at the stars, and as I breathe, and as I have a heartbeat, and I look at, you know, medicine, or I look at science, and I see the inner workings of the cell or the eyeball or something like that, I'm blown away and I'm enamored by the fact that this world obviously was created with intention and it seems to have been good and purposeful and perfect. Yet at the same time, when I back up, it becomes really obvious that something's not right. It's just off. It's a little askew. And so in the tract, which is printed on the page in front of you, it says this, everything that is wrong in our lives and in the world stems from the fateful choice humanity has made. From the very beginning, we didn't want God to be our ruler. We rejected Him as God by deciding to live our own way in defiance of Him. Um... So this tract is basically taking us all the way back to the beginning. And it's saying that the problem came when mankind, who if you'll remember in panel one that we talked about last week, um, we said there, or the tract even says there, that mankind, uh, this is a, a, I think this is actually a quote from panel one, uh, was the, were the mankind were the ones that God commissioned to rule over the world and be responsible for it. So it says that there in panel one. That's what he built us to do. And yet, the problem came when we rebelled against God. So in our rebellion against Him, what we're doing 
by sinning is rejecting him as king and instead enthroning ourselves in his place. We'll be the ones to decide how this goes. We're going to be the masters of our own domain. If you look in Romans 3, 10 to 12, which is included in your packet there, it says this, uh, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Or Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we're not talking about salvation yet. That's the rest of the verse, but we'll hold off on that one until we get there uh, in a few weeks. But you can see what the Bible is telling you is that literally this, this has impacted every person. We have all enthroned ourselves on our own thrones, essentially. So man's rejection of God came at the beginning when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Um. In this rejection, the original couple chose for themselves and for all of their progeny, their kids and grandkids, to whose authority they would listen. Um, look at Genesis 3, 1-8. I want to play, pay really close attention to this passage. This is where this takes place. Uh, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that, it, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, you notice about this that there is this tree that is, the tree of, not, of the knowledge of good and evil, God has told them not to eat of it. What does Eve say to the serpent? The serpent asked her, did, what, what, well first, what does the serpent ask her? What does he say? What is it? He asks a question, did God say? And then what does he ask if God said? What is the question that he asks? Did God say, Did, yeah, did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, he, he knows that's not true, right? Of course not. So he asks her this question. 
What does she say? We can eat of the trees of the garden, but not that tree. What, what, she doesn't just say, well, can't eat of that tree. What does she say? Can't touch it. Did God say that? He didn't say that. Who told her that? God actually told Adam that, gave Adam that command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then he created Eve. And so who told her that? Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't even get near it. All right? Because <laughs> in the day we eat of it, we die. So we know that in the eating of this tree, there are great consequences. And you can tell that the man and the woman obviously know the consequences that are coming. And they fear the consequences that would come if they eat of that tree because there's been a command that's been added to it, which is don't even touch it. So both of them, lest you kind of hear their excuses that they make later on and kind of give them a pass and think, well, I mean, they were deceived and maybe the wool was pulled over their eyes or something like that. It is very clear that they know what's at stake here. Okay, They at least understand death in some conceptual way enough to know, I don't want that. Okay, because we've already created a bigger boundary around this tree, taking a wide berth around it, lest we even get near one of the roots, right? And so, so the, the, Satan gives his, his explanation. <laughs> come on, come on. That's crazy. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you're not going to die. What will happen, does he say? What is it? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is the option that is presented to her? Is it, hey, this fruit, though, is really tasty? No. She reasons that on her own in a minute, but that's not what he presents to her. What does he present to her? The option to be like God. You understand that what's at stake here is a question of who is going to sit on the throne of your heart. You could be like God and discern all of this on your own. Or you could trust Him. That is the temptation. And what does she choose? Well, it says, when she saw that it was good for food, in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so it looked good, it seemed to be good for someone, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate. So what is, the, what, what is she craving here? And who was giving her the wisdom before? Where was she getting the wisdom? To know the difference between good and evil. Presumably, if the man and the woman were to rule over earth, that was what their created purpose was for, was to rule over earth, then there would have to be some wisdom that would have to be given to them, right? They were going to have to, uh, uh, you know, excommunicate from the garden anything that was unclean, anything that wasn't supposed to be there. They're going to get rid of it. Thorns and thistles or something like that. Anything else that they could find on the ground or animals or anything like that that weren't supposed to be there, they'd have to, miss, they'd have to uh, you know, relocate. All right? 
They would have to do that. They would have to understand the difference between good and evil. But who's going to give that to them? God was going to give that to them. Okay? He was going to supply the wisdom for them. So now they're taking it on their own. This is the choice that you and I have been facing since that day. So when, we, when we're talking about this sin that took place in the garden, um, well, hang on, just hang on to that just a second. That this, this sin that has taken place when Adam and Eve took the bite, it has now infected every single person. The question typically comes from Christians and from non-Christians, people hearing gospel for the first time, is, I don't understand. I wasn't there. I didn't make that choice. I'm not held responsible for Adam's choice. The question then should be, do you know the difference between good and evil? Do you know good and evil? Right now, do you know good and evil? Yeah, of course you do. If, if you tell a child, share your toys, do they just go, yes, mommy, I'll do that? No, they don't. If you give them a fork and you say, this is for food, not sticking in light sockets, what do they do? They just eat food with it. They don't ever do anything else with it, do they? No, they poke their brother in the eye. They go shove it in a light socket. They do everything. And, and not only that, they wait until your back is turned to do it. Till you're not looking. Because they know. So you're born with this knowledge of good and evil. These are things that I'm not supposed to do. These are things that I am supposed to do. You know that even from a very, very young age. How'd you come by that knowledge? Did God give that to you? So immediately you're recognizing the problem that's around here in the world, the reason that things are broken is explained right here. It's broken from the womb. And it's very, it's very clear, anybody that looks at anyone around them can tell that this is obviously the case. And, and so Adam and Eve... Once they come to the knowledge of good and evil on their own, they naturally pass this on to their children. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. All right, so they, they, it's given to Adam and all his progeny once they disobey God. They have chosen for humanity to be kings in their own right. Now, the problem is, whereas before there was no strain on man's relationship with God, after the man and woman sinned, they hid from him. And what does that tell you, that, that they hid from him? Because rebelling against God, man broke the right relationship that existed between them. So God's holiness is actually a frightful thing if we're rebelling against him. So immediately, God comes into the garden, they hear him, they hear him coming, and they know immediately to hide. Now, what they've been given is knowledge and wisdom. That's in here, isn't it? There's, it's not obvious on the outside, just by looking at you, that you have the knowledge of good and evil, right? They instinctively know we need to run. Why? Because that sin is something that God knows. Immediately. And that's something that we know separates us from Him. And so immediately upon seeing Him or hearing Him, 
they take off. And you can see this come to the fore in several other passages of Scripture. These are just a few. Isaiah uh, 6, verse 5. This is Isaiah. He comes into the temple. He has a vision inside the temple. And he sees there, uh, essentially, God sitting on the throne and angels all around him. And immediately, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So immediately, Isaiah is confronted by a vision of God, and what does he do? He starts confessing sin. <laughs> he immediately knows there's something wrong. Ezekiel 1.28, Like the appearance of the, of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Habakkuk 1.13, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you, uh, why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent? when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Uh, Hebrews 10.31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there's, we, we hear reiterated to us over and over again what it's like to be in the presence of God and yet also have this stain of sin, of disobedience, uh, having put ourselves on our own thrones. So, the result of all the sin is that mankind became rebels against God by nature. Um, so I, I want to underscore something that is often amiss, maybe, yeah. in, at least in many Christian circles. You're not condemned merely because you do sinful things. We are condemned as man, because we are part of a sinful race. You understand that? We're sinful by nature. This is why death exists. If you were judged as a sinner only because you chose sinful things, no infants would die in the womb because death is a penalty for sin. You understand? So it's not merely the fact that you choose sin that you incur the judgment. And this is what has to be understood by everyone as we're, as we're explaining the good news. We are sinful by nature. We're bent to the core from the womb to the tomb. Period. We sin because we're bent, not the other way around. All right, so as a result of sin, what have we become then? We have chosen, as is evident in the Adam and Eve story and is evident in our own lives, we have become rebels against God. We have essentially chosen our own throne against God's throne. We have chosen to get wisdom on our own, to grow in the knowledge of good and evil on our own. We've chosen that. So we see that Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3, 23, which is probably something we have, all have memorized. For all have sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God. So the tract says this. We all do this in our lives. So now we're moving from 
You are a sinner by nature because of what Adam and Eve have already done. And it's evident that they have done this because even your smallest child is bent, right? It's evident that Adam and Eve have done this. Now, we move to the second, second part of this. Because they did this, we all do this in our lives. We all partake in the same ways, in, sa- in similar sins, that Adam and Eve did. We do those same kinds of things. Most of the time, we simply ignore God or keep Him at a distance and get on with, our, with living our own lives. We don't thank Him as we should for our generous creator, for, for being our generous creator and provider. We don't honor and obey Him as our ruler. We follow our own desires and priorities and live by the values we decide are best, whether they're religious or secular or a mixture of both. The common Bible word for this religious stance toward God is sin. Notice how it's defining sin in this tract, which is very helpful, I think. It's not merely the things that we do. It could be just the ways that we think about God. Keeping Him at a distance. Going about our normal life. Not giving Him thanks as our generous creator and ruler, not seeking to honor Him, obey Him, all of those things. And we all do it, whether we follow a particular religion or not. So it's helpful to know that in order to receive this good news as good news, we have to first agree about two basic facts. First, Adam's rebellion against God has in fact poisoned the whole human race. Everybody is subject to this. Every single individual. Second, I also have taken part in this rebellion. Now, you would think that by acknowledging that the whole human race is part of this, that that's an admission on the part of the person hearing the gospel that they too have, but it's a whole different animal when you say, I have done this. That is a whole different thing, right? We, by nature, don't want to confess sin to anyone. In fact, you can hear this anytime somebody apologizes publicly for something they did that was terrible. They'll say, I apologize if anybody took what I said. I apologize if anyone was offended by, instead of, I'm sorry I said that. Those are two different things, right? I'm sorry if you were offended is not an apology. That's a, I'm sorry if you're a flawed individual. <laughs> right? Instead of saying, I'm sorry I said that. Well, that's a whole different, different animal. So we can look around the whole human race and say, do you know any kids that are perfect? Do you know any people that are perfect? No, you don't. So it's very clear that it's affected the whole human race. But do you also recognize that it has affected you as well? That there are evil things that take place in this world, and maybe you don't have control over governmental powers, and maybe you're not launching, you're not bombing, you know, little villages and wherever out of sheer meanness, or, okay, you don't have that kind of control. But do you recognize that on, even on a small scale that you're taking part in some of those things too? Do you recognize that some of the fallenness that's around the world is lying in your heart as well? Do you see that? 
So there's two acknowledgments. Before you can ever really take what I'm about to tell you as good news, you have to acknowledge those two things. That this is something that has corrupted the whole human race, and I have also taken part in this rebellion. Even if you don't see it as a rebellion yet, even if you aren't willing to acknowledge God yet, do you recognize that the things that are true of every human are also true in your heart? You, You would say, I'm a part of that. The problem of sin is not only a global problem, it's a rebellion that has corrupted me at the heart level. It's in here. It's motivations. It's thoughts. Those are the things that actually change my actions or motivate my actions. It's right here at the heart level. It's inside. So our sin... Simply put, this is how we're explaining this to other people, is breaking God's holy law. Here is what you should be, but here is what you're not, right? Here's what you should be, here's what you are. You are people who transgress, who don't want anything to do with God. And by definition, that would be breaking God's law. You're sinful. So, but, but at the same time, this breaking of God's holy law is how we place ourselves on the throne because we're rejecting His authority and we're choosing our own authority over our life. We're basically choosing to be governed by our own authority. That's what Adam and Eve did. That is what all their progeny have done every generation since, is chosen to live by our own authority. Look at James 2, verses 10 to 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Right? So the law it doesn't matter what law you break, you're still a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter if it's murder or if it's adultery. It's still breaking the law. If God has said, this is what holiness is, and you've chosen to go your own way, then you're saying, I don't want that rule. I want my own rule, by definition. So this obviously presents a huge problem. The tract says it this way. We find ourselves in a world full of little gods then. So that's what that means. We've taken our own thrones, and so the world, the reason the world is sinful is because it's all a God competition. It's all a little g-God competition. We're each our own gods, and we're competing against each other, essentially. We turn on each other. Each of us doing our own things our own way. Each of us selfishly trying to bend the world and other people to our own will. Now, pause right there for just a second. I want you to think about just the most recent conflict you've had with anybody, okay? Just think about it. Boil it down. Isn't it a battle of wills? I want my way. You want your way, right? What would happen in that conflict if each person laid down their own desires and sought to please the other? Not just one person did it, both people did it. What would happen in that conflict if both people were like, you know what, my way doesn't even matter. 
I want you to be happy and fulfilled, and I, will, I, will, I want to help you get to that end. And both people did that. Would there be a conflict there? There wouldn't. There couldn't be a conflict there. So, essentially, what we're looking at here is a God competition where each, people are, each person is trying to make the other people bow down to their own will. It's hardly surprising that it doesn't work. Our self-rule fails, and we suffer the consequences, including the damage we do to ourselves, to the people around us, and to the world we live in. You can take those little conflicts that you engage in in your kitchen, and you can bring them all the way up to the halls of Congress or to governmental powers. Isn't that what they're trying to do? Of course they are. There wouldn't be global conflict if each country, each person, wasn't their own little god trying to make the other bend to their own will. Right? That, that's essentially what it bows, uh, boils down to. Um, so we see then that breaking the law is not an abstract offense distantly removed from our relationship with God, but it's very personal. We're all rebels who have broken our relationship with God. Sin is not merely a question of making a mistake, but offending a holy God. So we're, we're, we're thinking here, how, is, how could we possibly get out of that? How could we get out of that vicious loop that we have to recognize we're all in? Is there a way out of it? Well, it's certainly not going to be by improving your throne, making it better. It's going to be by replacing the throne, replacing you on the throne and putting somebody else on it. Right? So we have to recognize that the reason you have put yourself on your own throne and that you want to bend other people to your own will is, is because you have offended a holy God. He belongs on that throne, not you. And that's the reason you do the things that you do. So we tend to think of ourselves as naturally good. And you'll hear this a lot when you, you know, ask people if they're good. Uh, do you think you're good? Yes, I think I am good. How are you going to get to heaven? Well, I think when I get there, uh, and, and if there was a God, how, how, what, would, what would judgment be like? Well, I think he'd be asked me, you know, you know, what have you done? If he asked you, why, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, I'd try to be a good person. And, and, you know, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then he opens the doors to heaven and he lets, he lets me in. We, think, we tend to think of ourselves as naturally good. But why do we do that? Because we've made ourselves our own God. We've put ourselves on our own throne. So what that means then is we, as God of our own universe, have created our own law. And wouldn't you know, we succeed in upholding our own law. Don't you notice this? That like, even when somebody has some principles that they violate, they've got reasons for why they did that. And for some reason, we can always justify all the things that we did because, well, it made sense because, you know, this, that, and the other, and if you carry the two, you know, there I am, and, and that's, that's the reason I did that thing, whatever it was. Of course, we can 
Uh, we have adopted our own law because we've made ourselves king of our own domain and in, in our own hearts. We're sitting on the throne and having created our own law, wouldn't you know that it conveniently accommodates and excuses all of our sins, making us perfectly good by our own standard of righteousness. So this is, this is what's wrong with the world. This is the explanation of what's wrong with the world. It is a throne swap. You have replaced the God that belongs on the throne, that you were created to put on the throne, that you were created to acknowledge is on the throne, and you have put yourself there instead. Now, how do, what do we do? If you look at the bottom of your, your worksheet here, I don't have slides for these, but, and I don't, they're not blanks, but um, there are some things that I think you should consider as you, you know, present the gospel to somebody, even whether you're presenting a tract or not, even if you're just talking with them about sin. So let's say the topic of sin comes up. Maybe they don't believe um, they are sinful or something like that. Uh, there's some approaches that I think would be helpful. One is to use children as an example. Um, you can see that children are, inher- you know, they're a convenient example because they're inherently self-centered. You can see that. Everybody acknowledges that. You don't have to, um, you have to teach your kids to share to be kind. You don't have to teach your kids to hit their sibling or kick them or push them or steal their toy or whatever. You don't have to, you don't have to do that. You don't have to teach the, your kids, hey, you need to wait until my back's turned to do these things, right? You don't have to teach them that. They know when you're looking and when you're not, and they choose when you're not looking. Uh, they will disobey. So you can, you can point to the kids and say, do you know a perfect kid? Of course not. But yet... Don't you have an idea of what perfect would be? Do you have an idea right now in your head of what a perfect child would be? You have an idea of what disobedience is and what obedience is, and you would say, here is a perfect child, one that obeys all the time. You've never seen it. Why is it that you know what it is, but you've never seen it? It's baked into you. You understand that something is broken. So using children as an example is a very clear way of saying you, you do know something is broken, even if you're not willing to acknowledge that right now. Um, point the unbeliever to the world around them and ask them... Oh, sorry, I, I forgot I don't have a slide for this. Point the unbeliever to the world around them and ask them to identify what is wrong with it. So you can say like, hey, okay, so if you were to look around at the world... what? What do you think is like is wrong? What are the what are some of the biggest problems that are here? And and you hear some of these things that I've got listed here: too much hate, too much injustice, too much selfishness, too much da 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 da. And they can go on and on and on. But what happens is is you can then point the unbeliever toward themselves and go, those things that you say are wrong with the world. And this is if these things weren't there, then everything would be much better. Do you recognize any of these things in yourself? Do you recognize injustice in yourself? Do you recognize hatred in yourself? Do you recognize selfishness in yourself? And maybe they don't think about those things. They don't want to acknowledge those things. One of the things that I think is the most helpful is to take things like the Ten Commandments and say, all right, lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Have you ever cheated? Yeah. 
Have you ever stolen, even if it was when you were six and it was a candy bar or something like that? Have you ever stolen? Yeah. Jesus says if you've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. Have you ever committed adultery by that standard? Yeah, of course. So then, do you really think you're good? If God's standard of holiness was this, and you have just admitted by looking around at the world that lying, cheating, and stealing, and all those things are terrible, and you've just admitted that you're part of it, do you think that God is going, that's ah, fine. <laughs> Who cares? If you can admit that those things that are wrong with the world, that are broken in the world, are actually lying deep down in your heart, can't you see that you're part of the problem? Now, if you were to stand before a holy God, let's just say God exists and let's say He is holy. If you were to stand before a holy God, the God that I'm telling you about, the only God that exists, the God that is truly holy, if you were to stand before Him with all of that, you're lying, you're cheating, and you're stealing, do you think He'd go, Come on in, you rascal? I don't think so. What if your sin was not measured against the guy sitting next to you? What if it was measured against God's holiness? Would you measure up? What if he said to you, I'm only letting people in here who are as holy as me? His word says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. What if he said, the only people that are getting in are people as holy as me? Would you make it? That's what his word says. Every person that I've ever told that to has all said, well, then we're all, well, he used a word, but we're all messed up. And I said, yes, exactly. But you can't understand the good news that's coming unless you get that firmly. Unless you understand we are all messed up. Every single one of us. In fact, that's what Paul means. That's what Isaiah means. When he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, or all we like sheep have gone astray. That's what they mean. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now you're ready for the good news. Does that make sense? Question. Um, I would say I don't have a verse to say there they know what death is. I think by implication, them saying neither shall you touch it, they know whatever they know about death, they understand it is serious. So I think by implication, God saying in the day you eat of it, you will die, is them knowing what death is in concept at the very least. I, you know, I don't know. Um, if you pluck a fruit off a tree but in the garden and you were to just sit it on the ground, what would happen to that fruit? I think it would rot. Okay? <laughs> I, I think that, that that fruit would decay, would rot, the seeds would go into the ground and an apple tree would spring up or whatever kind of tree it was would spring up. Okay? Is that a death? Is that death? I feel like, what would they call that? I feel like they would call that death. You know? So, how much more about death did they know than I'm going to be plucked from the vine and I'm going to be left, in, left to rot? I don't know. 
It could be. It could be that they did, yeah, David says it could be that they didn't have a full appreciation for death. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, a, a lot of those things, you know, it, it's hard because you get, you get this much text and you go, I, I think that's what this means. But then you start getting a lot beyond that and you get into kind of speculation and like, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, but that's why I say like, I feel like if you pluck something off, the, off a vine and you threw it on the ground that it would rot in the Garden of Eden, even, even though it's the Garden of Eden. But who knows? At some point it starts to get like, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen? Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 10,000. <laughs> I don't know. Any other, any other questions? All right, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray for uh, us as a church sharing the gospel, having a tool in our hand or our back pocket or our purse to give us a reminder that we should give this to somebody. Um, I pray for the one that I carry around and for all the ones that are carried around by members of this congregation that you would appoint somebody, somebody's hands to receive that. Uh, we pray that you would open somebody's ears to hear what's said by us, whether it's an invitation to church or good news of the gospel. I pray that you would prepare us with an understanding of what the good news is and an understanding of the bad news, too, that makes the good news possible and makes the good news good. That we wouldn't be afraid to share any of that, all of it, the parts that are necessary. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know the difference between all those things. We pray for help. We want help. We need help. We want boldness. We need boldness. Would you supply that for us, that we might in our boldness, just ask people if they've heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.